Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Ali, what are a couple of headlines you've been following recently? Welcome back to our regular listeners and those that are listening for the first time. Researchers have reported a third case of a person being cleared of HIV after undergoing stem cell transplant aimed at curing his leukemia as a primary reason for the transplant. The identity of the person hasn't been released, but we know that he's in Dusseldorf and this is being referred to now in the media as the Dusseldorf patient. And this comes after previously in the past 10 years or so, both a Berlin patient and a London patient who were also declared HIV free following a stem cell transplant. Like the London and Berlin patients, this patient had a rare mutation that provided resistance to strains of HIV. And when this transplant was given to the patient, that resistant transferred to him. Yeah, what an incredible story, Ollie. It's so pleasing to see that this gentleman in Dusseldorf has been cured from HIV, obviously a condition in which we thought was incurable. This underlines that these approaches are promising and also reproducible, as it does not remain an isolated case, given that the patients in London and Berlin were also cured of HIV through this treatment. However, researchers have pointed out this treatment has not been successful for several other patients that have received it. Despite this, it really does demonstrate important progress in the fight against HIV and the development of gene editing technologies such as CRISPR, which actually we covered in one of our podcasts a couple of weeks back, could mean that this kind of stem cells transplanted into Dusseldorf patient are now able to be created in a laboratory rather than harvested from donors. So clearly more research is needed here, but it could be reproducible and impact lots more patients than the three that we've been talking about here. Exactly, Jack. So I think there are still some open questions here. Obviously, great news and great progress. But one of the other caveats that the researchers have been publishing in the media is there is still debate on exactly what cured of HIV means. HIV can remain dormant in the body for a long time. So what they're really referring to is in this Dusseldorf patient and also in the London and Berlin patients. It's been a number of years now after the transplant that HIV hasn't been detected in the body. So this is the assumption they're making, but all three of these patients are going to be continuing to be monitored for a long period of time. So this Dusseldorf patient, it's been nine years since HIV was detected in him. So a long time, but we can't conclusively say he's cured in inverted commas of HIV quite yet. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see over that longer period of time what happens and the implications further afield. I just want to add one point before we move on. I mean, while this treatment is unlikely to be used for non-cancer patients because it's high risk, the research does offer further confirmation that HIV is not entirely curable, as was once thought. It also offers hope for a future without daily medical treatment for those with HIV and further underscores the potential for other research in finding a cure to this devastating disease. Beyond just the good news on the face of this story and some of the points that you just made, Jack, around why this gives us reasons for hope, one of the reasons this story really excites me is around this whole theme of modality shift or like new modes 
of treatment within the life sciences space, right? We saw this with the reinvigoration of the mRNA technology for the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, And like you said, this isn't going to be a practical treatment for most HIV patients, but just the idea of what kind of thinking could this spur for patients who are maybe not good candidates for traditional antiviral therapy? How can this build on new technologies like gene therapy or CRISPR therapies to maybe come up with something new for this hard to treat subsegment or even for the larger group in general? Another story that has caught my eye in terms of modality shift has to do with digital mental health. Jack, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, Jen. This area is really close to my heart. One in six people report experiencing a common mental health problem such as anxiety and depression in any given week in England. And that was according to NHS Digital. And the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, otherwise known as NICE, has recommended eight digital therapies for mental health disorders. So it's really encouraging that the government um, is investing in this space, given that it affects so many individuals, not just in England, but of course, around the world. And, you know, they're going to cover a wide range of different treatment options. And I think, Ollie, you're going to provide a little bit more detail around those. Yes, Jack. So... The eight digital therapies cover a range of depression and anxiety-related conditions that the NHS currently treats patients for. This is including PTSD as well and body dysmorphia. And this NICE, at least, estimates has the potential to help around 40,000 people in the UK. These digital tools, which draw on cognitive behavioral therapy or commonly referred to as CBT techniques, have been given the backing by NICE. And this really comes against the backdrop of patients waiting a long time for mental health related treatment in the UK. Currently, I had a look at a survey that the Royal College of Psychiatrists published, which indicated that 43% of patients reported that the long wait for mental health treatment was actually resulting in further deterioration of their health. Yeah, it's a shocking statistic, that one, Ollie, and it's so pleasing there are more options available for patients suffering with mental health conditions, given its prevalence. In further good news, the UK government has also pledged to invest an additional $2.3 billion a year into mental health services by 2024. This is going to include a programme to provide people with employment support and advice. And these eight new digital therapies that you talked about join other digital CBT tools recommended by NICE, including four applications for children with anxiety, which got the green light in guidance published earlier this month. Thanks, Jack. We know that there's just been huge investment in the digital mental health space accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And while we have seen some of that funding maybe cool a bit in the second half of 2022, heading into 2023, it's not going anywhere, right? There's definitely a lot of value that investors still see in it. Clearly a lot of value that the UK government sees in it. And I think over here, there's a lot of value that we see stateside in terms of employers, right? We're really starting to see employers lean in a little bit more and think about how do they provide some of these services around mental health to their employees. And digital is a really accessible way to do that. I think also some similar parallels that we're seeing in terms of an increasing focus on those solutions that really help with children and adolescents. I think you had mentioned some direct investment from the NHS there. I think in terms of the private investment we see over here in the States following some some similar trends as well. And I think it's really great just to see 
more solutions be available to the patient um, as we're seeing the evolution of the marketplace around this idea of patient centricity and consumerism in healthcare. Exactly that, Jen. I think that the use of technology and digital applications is helping the private sector and pharma companies become more patient-centric. And recently published, we saw a report on healthcare practitioners' attitude to biopharma companies, asking the doctors and the prescribers how they feel biopharma companies perform and how they treat patients. Now, this survey was done by Brands in Motion. It interviewed and, and drew on observations from over a thousand healthcare practitioners. And the survey found that only 45% of them felt like biopharma companies embodied patient centricity. Now, this is a huge trend that we see in a lot of our work. I know that this is something that, that Jack focuses on a lot. And biopharma companies want patient centricity to be one of the top characteristics, and they want to embody that. And they want to be innovative and progressive and improve outcomes for patients. So everyone is agreed on the importance of patient-centric pharma, but it does seem, at least from an HEP perspective, that they feel like companies are falling short. Yeah, that's right, Ollie. And some further insights in the survey were that HCPs landed on three key areas they're seeking from the industry around patient centricity. Number one, offering patient education and support programs. Number two, improving an understanding of complex health information or health literacy. And finally, number three, demonstrating an understanding of the lived patient experience, both physical and emotional. I think that one resonates most with me, that last one around really understanding that lived patient experience, speaking to patients as much as they possibly can, whether that be through patient councils or other vehicles, to really understand their physical and emotional needs with them managing their condition. It's not enough just to give the drug treatment now. Pharmaceutical companies really have to think about what are the beyond or around the pill initiatives, or what it's called in the industry, to be able to support that patient along their treatment journey. The report also recommended that to raise a brand's profile in a sector where everyone is patient-centric and innovative, it is important to develop a distinctive voice to tell your story in unique ways and stay apart in a sea of sameness. And to bring a little bit more colour to that uh, insight, lots of people are doing it, lots of people think they're patient-centric, but clearly this survey is showing that they've got a long way to go and you need to be able to think outside the box and deploy innovative ways in which to engage with patients and integrate their perspectives into your business. So this survey looked at HCPs from six countries that included Germany, the UK and the US, and it also found that Nine out of 10 doctors believe that biotech and pharma companies should be improving patient health outcomes beyond the development of high quality drug therapies. And I think that's coupled with also three quarters of them said that these companies should add value to society beyond the goods and services that they're producing. And this is a trend, I think, that isn't unique to pharma and life sciences. This is economy wide. We are putting more expectation on these large companies, and that's coming from both shareholders, customers, and the communities in which these companies operate to not only focus on their bottom line, their revenue, their profits, but also to be a force for positive change in society. And clearly, life sciences are in a position where they can make huge differences to patient lives, and doctors want to see more from a patient-centricity perspective. We've talked about patient centricity on this 
podcast before, right? And I think stateside in the commercial market, we might have a little bit more flexibility with what some of these companies can do in terms of the programs and the way that they engage patients, right? If you even just think about the differences in direct-to-consumer advertising, there is you know, that win-win for the patient and the life science company, if they're able to pull them into the conversation with their doctor and really like activate these patients to get involved in their care, to ask about certain therapies, but in other markets or more, you know, publicly controlled healthcare markets, I can see this being a little bit more of a challenge for these biopharmaceutical companies to figure out how to activate and how to engage with these patients in a meaningful way as they're trying to meet this high bar for patient centricity. Jack, I'm curious if there are any like practical steps that come to mind that pharma companies should be considering in their quest to be more patient centric. Yeah, thanks, Jen. You you hit on a great point that within the European market, it can be challenging with the constraints that we have and the compliance and legal considerations. But there are some real easy practical steps that pharmaceutical companies can take to improve their focus on the patient. I'll just cover a few. So one is setting up patient councils. These are a great way of hearing directly from patients. You can get their insights on lots of different things, whether that be clinical trial design, patient solutions. You might be rolling out a chatbot or an online community. You can seek their input there, but really hearing from them and giving them a safe space in which to share their lived experiences is one quite easy and practical way to move yourself into a more patient-centric way of working. Another key trend that we're seeing in industry is the actually appointment of chief patient officers to the board. This has happened to some really large pharmaceutical companies, but also the smaller companies. I see them adopting this as well in the future to really make sure that the patient is top of mind and you have that leadership top down from the organization. Some people believe that it's very hard to measure um, patient centricity's impact in terms of revenue. However, there are some ways in which you can adopt patient-related metrics to tie this to revenue and overall performance. And obviously, it's linked to improvement of culture as well within the organization if you're more patient-centric. I touched on this already, but invest in beyond-the-pill initiatives, things like online communities, patient ambassadors, chatbots, so a lot of digital tools out there as well that you can invest in to make sure you engage with the patient in an effective way. And just lastly, ensure that you collaborate very closely with patient advocacy groups, otherwise known as patient organizations. They have some of them tens of thousands of patient members across the world, and they're a great partner to collaborate with to really understand patient needs and work on joint initiatives that are of mutual benefit both to the patient advocacy group, but also to the pharmaceutical organization. And Jack, I love all those practical steps that pharma companies can take. And I think that this really shows that patient centricity isn't just a buzzword that they feel like they have to pay homage to. It really is. There are practical things that they can go out and change within their business to better serve patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ollie. There's not a definition of patient centricity that's uniform across the industry, but the one that I think is the best is no decision about me without me. It really encapsulates it perfectly. The more that you can involve patients, the more it's going to drive your business forward and obviously have an impact on those patient lives. And that's key to it at the end of the day. That's who you're, you're, you're looking to, to help and support and bringing organizations back to that as much as you can, I think is really important. And to stay ahead of the competition, they're going to have to do that anyway to remain competitive. And to end on this month and bring it a little closer to home, we've had some really positive news in the UK this week. 
that Moderna has revealed that they are setting up a new science and innovation campus in Oxfordshire. Now, our listeners may have heard of Moderna before from RNA, uh, COVID vaccine fame, I suppose. But this is going to be the primary location for the Moderna Innovation and Technology Center. This is coming off the back of Moderna's 10-year strategic partnership with the UK government. Now, that was finalized at the end of last year. And the UK government has these sorts of agreements with many high-tech life sciences companies to try and encourage investment and development of skills here in the UK. Yeah, amazing news, Ollie. It's always great to see investment in the UK, particularly from the, the healthcare sector. Obviously, we're considered leaders within Europe, and it's always lovely to see stories like this where we see further investment from such a such a household name like Moderna, from, I like how you put it, COVID fame. The MITC, so the Innovation Centre, will involve a development, research and manufacturing facility, and it aims to provide the UK public with access to the mRNA vaccines. These vaccines will cover a wide range of respiratory diseases, and they will be pending independent regulatory assessment and licences. I think a key takeaway from me is that for the last couple of years, it's so important that we have the skills, capabilities, investments locally in the UK with such a powerhouse, as I previously mentioned. So it's really nice to see that they're investing here and it'll be really great to see further investment for other companies like Moderna to further and accelerate research and development and innovation within the UK. And I know we've discussed mRNA science before on this podcast, but this really is going to be one of the areas of science where the boundaries are going to be pushed over the next decade, two decades. This is going to be one of the topics in life sciences that has huge innovation. So having that happening in the UK, having vaccine innovation happen that is available to the UK public as well, can help us address any emerging threats and, and also provide huge benefits to our local population. Yeah, it's really hard to understate like what a big deal this is, right? Moderna has really established itself as a juggernaut in the mRNA space and they're projecting sales of their their COVID-19 vaccine to be $5 billion this year, but they have set in place a program to, to keep that growth even beyond COVID-19 vaccination as the pandemic changes and matures, right? I've seen figures that they're planning $4.5 billion in R&D investment from, from last year. That number can only be expected to grow. And I've seen that they have upwards of 48 programs right now and 36 clinical trials. So they may be of COVID fame right now, but it sounds like they're looking to broaden that reputation going forward. So certainly exciting to have a hub of innovation associated with Moderna right in your backyard. Thank you so much, Jack and Ollie, for taking us through some of these stories today. A lot of reasons for, for hope and optimism when we're looking at investments in digital mental health, when we're looking at curative treatments for HIV. But we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.